0: Welcome to Valley Queens, tonight we will be talking about the history and future of black teachers in America with Dr. Cheryl J. Croft. She is an associate professor of educational leadership in Bagwell College of Education of Kennesaw State University, director of the doctorate educational leadership, and director of teaching in the urban south. As a veteran practitioner with over 35 years in education, She has served in every level of leadership from principal to assistant school superintendent. As a scholar practitioner, her work is informed by and lies at the intersectionality of informed practice and research that seeks to improve educational opportunities for students marginalized by systemic inequities. Most illustrative of this work is her co-edited book, Living the Legacy, of African-American education, a model for university and school engagement that exemplifies how past paradigms may be used to mitigate and inform contemporary leadership paradigms. Welcome to the Valley Queens podcast. We have here with us tonight, Dr. Cheryl Croft, and she will be speaking to us about the history of black teachers and the current state of Black teachers and what we can do in the future to be able to um, encourage the growth of people of color in this profession, as well as in education. Um, So thank you so much for being here.
1: You're welcome, thank you for having me.
0: And I just wanted to start with where we we are right now, which is nationally and in New York State specifically, Um, our pool of black teachers tops at 20%, right? Was
1: this always the case? Absolutely not. Um, Prior to Brown, there were about 2 million teachers, 82,000 teachers who were teaching 2 million black students. And this is particularly in the South the segregated South and because of segregation and the Jim Crow laws, black students had to be taught by black teachers. And so I never saw, and let me just say this, I'm a product of both worlds. I was educated in the segregated South in segregated schools. And then when I finished school I went on to um, college and I taught in a... And so I saw it before and I experienced it as an educator afterwards. And the difference was drastic. And to make it even um, more poignant, my first teaching job was in the school where I went to high school with all black, Teachers. So when I came back to teach, it had changed so drastically. Not only did we not have a predominantly Black faculty, but it was integrated with faculty, and I hate to say it, who really didn't care very much about the children or about their progress. And so my mission was to replicate in many ways what I saw. And what I experienced as a student. So the a simple answer to your question is absolutely not. Um, it particularly in the segregated South, the black children were taught by black teachers. So
0: when you discuss the before Brown and after Brown, and let's just make this really clear: Brown versus the board of Ed um was a case that was brought to court, and that's basically marked the end of let's just say formal um, student segregation in the United States. Um, So now, before that, there were black students in black schools with black teachers and white students in white schools with white teachers. After that, black students and white students needed to be
1: in the same school.
0: But what happened to the black teachers?
1: In mass, black teachers and black principals were fired. Um, Principals who had been black principals who had been principals of successful black schools were sometimes offered the job as an assistant principal in a desegregated school. And the black teachers lost their jobs in mass. Some some accounts as many as over 5,000 at least. And the major teaching force was just, they were wiped out. The the thought was that um, the black teachers, because they taught in in inferior schools, were incapable of teaching the white students. So only a handful were able to go into the teaching force. Um, And what's interesting about that is that schools had rituals and you could talk to almost any person who attended a predominant black school in the segregated south and they had some of the same experiences um they had some of the same rituals they had they had and they had teachers who had high expectations and aspirations with brown versus board in 1954, and then Brown versus Board II in 1955, where the courts said they could, enter, they could integrate with all due delivery speed. The Southern states, all of a sudden they put the brakes on and what they actually start trying to do was to establish a, a dual system in reality. What they should have had before right? But they tried to make to bring in equity and equality in the buildings and that kind of thing. But they found it was too. Ex- so given this expense, they just closed many of the black schools, mm-hmm. and then bust the black children to the white schools, where they were not welcome, and where many of the children thought that they were inferior, many of the teachers thought that they were inferior anyway. So
0: when we have this in mass um, firing of black teachers, and also I wanna add to that, that obviously the black teachers that were uh, still working in the, in the integrated schools, um, there was also retention issues as well. Um, so what did we lose in terms of black education? When we integrated the schools and there were no more black teachers like what did we lose like that's what we don't know because a lot of people haven't even heard of this or experienced that
1: exactly we already in the community had aspirations that was part that was an integral part of our education every day in every class the teachers inspired you. They told you, you could be whatever you wanted to be. Um, We also had advocacy. They advocated for the students for us to have the best things. What we did not have and what we thought Brown would give us was access to resources. And that's what we thought Brown would do. And instead in the, um, in, in the, um, lost education of, of Horace Tate, he said we got a second class citizenship, a second class ed- education, because we thought we were going to get the same kind of education that was afforded the white students. But in fact, we got an inferior, we got a far, far, far more inferior education than what we had been experiencing. The teachers had high expectations. Every day, like I said, they would they would inspire us to do better and the mantra I don't know whether you've heard this or not, but we were told. You have to run faster, you have to run harder because you're starting behind the race line when the bell rings, they said the other students have already taken off, but you're going to have to run faster and that was that that was something that was deeply ingrained in us. Um, so we lost that, um, we lost our communities. And I think it's yeah. interesting, um, uh, Gates talks about the strided community. Uh, Irvine talks about the community, but in my community where I grew up, segregated community, I could point to Dr. Smith's house. I could, co- I could point to Dr. Davis' house. I could also point to Mrs. Morris's house, who was a teacher, I could could point to someone else's house whose mother was a, a domestic engineer. I guess that's what they call them now, right? Everybody, it didn't matter, lived in the same neighborhood. And I guess the reason I bring this up is because if everybody is living in the same neighborhood, then the education that is good enough for Dr. Smith's daughter, has to be good enough for my father who was a postman or for another student's mother who was a domestic engineer. The the level was the same and the expectation for all students was the same. I think that's one of the critical things that we we don't have now. We lost the community respect. And now as soon as, I won't say as soon as because everything is a gradual process, but people moved out of the community. And when they moved out of the community, the resources moved out of the community, um, the respect moved out of the community. And then, as it is today, you have the resegregation, but the resegregation is different because you have predominantly poor Black and Brown children and families in these communities. So you don't have the middle class and uh, the upper middle class to sort of buffer and support the bottom fell all the way to the bottom with um, with uh, desegregation and integration. So before
0: we discussed what black students and actually black teachers as well in the black community benefited from, and the fact that the issue was that there was obviously a lack of uh, systemic resources um, available and then brown versus Board of Ed happened. So what happened to, so what are the students facing now after Brown versus Board of Ed? Like immediately after, what was the change? What was the drastic, if there was a drastic change?
1: Right, yeah, there was. um, Well, it took years for the desegregation to take place, right? And so as it gradually took place, you had fewer and fewer Black teachers, fewer and fewer Black principals. And like I said, you had uh, all, not the demise, but you had um, the, the Black community. Um, it wasn't destroyed, but it was damaged. I, I, I think that's the best way to put it, it, was damaged. But what in the wake of Brown, you had teachers, who were teaching children that they didn't care about and who they saw as inferior. And so they treated them as inferior. You had fewer children who were um, in the advanced classes. You had more children, particularly the African-American boys who were more severely and disproportionately um, disciplined. You had more children, uh, particularly African who, um, who they would. Can
0: you repeat, repeat the last part, your last sentence? Because I think it cut off a little.
1: I said um, you had the black boys who dis- disproportionately disciplined Mm -hmm. Um, You have fewer children in the advanced AP classes. And I said, and it's because you can't, you couldn't, the teachers cannot see the humanity of the children. If I can give you um, a kind of illustration, and this came out of my class recently, they we, there are two scenarios. One was a a first grade little boy who um, urinated in the water (laughs) fountain, why? We don't know. Okay. The other was a seventh grade boy who deliberately took an an eraser and threw it deliberately at the teacher and hit the teacher. Mm -hmm. One student was expelled from school. The other was suspended for three days. The one who was expelled was the second grade, the first grade little boy. Mm -hmm. The one who was suspended for um, three days was the seventh grade boy. The the first grade was black and the seventh grader was white. And you have to ask yourself, where's the equity and where's the justice in that kind of disproportionate discipline? Um, My students do equity audits frequently in my classes And the one thing that is startling to them is the disproportionate discipline of African-American and Hispanic boys and girls. Even when they are um, like 13% of the population, they will represent as much as 70% of the discipline referrals. And so that tells you, if you're looking at that, that there's a disconnect somewhere between what the teachers expect and the children. And a lot of uh, researchers talk about cultural synchronization and I know that's a kind of a term, right? Mm-hmm. And, and, what, and what it means is that the teachers are out of sync with the culture of the students. Uh, one of my students recently uh, commented that when a black child laughs a teacher will report that black child to the office for being loud and disrespectful, just for laughing, just for laughing. But if she understood that the student was just laughing, not at her, but with the group of peers, then she wouldn't necessarily report the student to the office. What she tried to do is redirect that student and use that as a teachable moment to teach the students how to behave. And that's one difference that I've I've seen. When, um, during segregation, and this is documented in uh, Walker's research, in Tillman's research, in Irvine's research, the school believed in extracurricular activities. Mm. And they exposed the children to as much as they possibly could. And and the, the, the idea was that we are going to prepare you to succeed in a world that is not now available to you and to right. be able to succeed in that world you're going to have to be uh familiar with all of the sort of um, mores all of the sort of uh social kinds of um, things that you're going to encounter so it was nothing and you may or may not believe this but it was nothing for us to go to the symphony. Every year we went to the symphony. Um, The whole school from the time you were third grade on up because they wanted us to be exposed to that kind of uh, culture, if you will. And granted, it was Eurocentric but there was method in the madness. It was Eurocentric because they fully anticipated that we will go forth and we would we would be full participating citizens in a in a in a society that was dominated right by the Eurocentric um uh um, I'm losing the word but by Eurocentrism right right and so they prepared us um, another large part of it was uh, civic responsibility. They taught us that we were to be good citizens. They taught us what it meant to vote. Every Mm. senior class was registered to vote. That didn't happen uh, by happenstance. That happened because of a network that trained principals and teachers on how to best work with black students. And I can talk about that later on if if you want me to.
0: No, that sounds good because all of a sudden now we're talking about right after um, Brown versus Board of Ed. And then we're talking about current, like current, the current state of black students. For example, like we are talking about disciplining, right? Still, um, black children are penalized a lot harsher in schools than white kids, especially black girls currently. Uh, And this is not only a national trend, this is also a trend that is happening in our own towns. Um, Also differential state test scores, um, as well as absentee days, number of absentee days, things like that. So my question is from 1955 to now, what progress has happened?
1: I say very little. Okay. I would say very little. Between the 1960s up until the 70s, the achievement gap almost closed. And if you think about the 1960s with Johnson's Great Society and War on Poverty, he put in place systematic, systemic, structures that would help the disadvantage. You think about Head Start that came yeah. under Johnson's program. If you think about the Pell Grants, that came under Johnson's program. Um, I was a recipient of a Pell Grant. That was the way I was able to go to a, a, an elite private school. Um, after that time, the 70s, and Scott Baker talks about this, the paradox of desegregation how all of a sudden they started wanting to have accountability and testing and this emphasis on accountability and testing people bought into it thinking oh this is a good thing we're going to we're going to see how the children are progressing but in 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 point of fact it had it had some disadvantages because what it did was it highlighted some of the gaps in education, but rather than closing those gaps and having programs to close those gaps, they came up with first, a nation at risk in 1983, that highlighted all of the terrible things that were going in schools. And then you had goals 2000, all of this was a march toward accountability. Before it was a march toward equalizing and providing equity. Now it's a march toward meritocracy you have to earn this you know you can you can't just uh live off of the the government right the, who you keep, you have to pull yourself up by your bootstraps not thinking that some of the people they didn't even they had boots on from the beginning they didn't have to pull the bootstraps up right and so then you had no child left behind that is in my opinion, one of the worst things that happened to education. And let let me sort of backtrack. Prior to Brown versus Board, the the segregated schools had autonomy. They could basically do Mm. what they wanted and they mimicked, not mimicked, but they appropriated and used much of what the accredited white schools were doing, but they fit it to their own purposes to educate their children. They were under the ra- radar. The white superintendents didn't really care what they did. Fast forward to No Child Left Behind. Now all of the schools are under the auspices of the government. And so everybody's under a microscope and the schools, the principals, the teachers no longer have the autonomy to educate children in the way that they think that is best. And what I think is such a tragedy in working with, with teachers now is that we have a generation of teachers who've been fed No Child Left Behind. Mm-hmm. And so they think that that is the only way to educate children. And so when, when you talk to them about the care You talk to to them about the high expectations. You talk to them about the aspiration. They want to tell you their pushback is, but we've got to raise test scores. Mm -hmm. But we've got to raise test scores. And so the argument is, yes, you have to raise test scores, but are you dealing with widgets? You know, you're dealing with human beings who have a particular need but they've been so spoon-fed this accountability that they almost have blinders on and it's very, very difficult to get through to them.
0: So with this wave of sort of like testing as a priority and as a tool for making decisions as to how resources will be allocated, um, all of this, of course, relying on a foundation of meritocracy which is the idea that like hard work begets rewards, Um, not understanding that we're not all born into the same place with the same circumstances and the same resources. Exactly. Which is insane. And actually one of the greatest predictors of how much money you will make as an adult is not hard work, it's not education, it's actually how much money your parents had when you were born. And this is in the United States. We're not talking about like the middle ages. This is in the right, United States. Right, right. So my question is, um, I, I, I just finished a book and it's called Racism Without Racists. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, oh. It's talking about how racism has evolved from being out in the open having like laws saying specifically no Black or Hispanics here, we're not allowed, things like that. too. it being hidden behind seemingly innocent universal policies. But the idea here is that the color blindness and the accepting of this meritocracy as if we're all born into the same station, basically, is actually perpetuating the racism that was there before. Right. Um, So you discussed all these programs that we're focusing on accountability. So I guess my question is um, there has been recently, I don't know if you've heard of this, but there was a George Floyd thing that
1: happened. (laughs) Yeah, right. I have a poem about that, believe it or not. (laughs) You do? Yes. In terms of education? Um, Actually, I did a mothering panel recently, and I used the poem to introduce it, and basically what I said is if schools return and they don't take into consideration the emotional trauma, the psychological trauma that students have undergone during the COVID, that it will be a, a tantamount to them putting a knee on their hearts and necks and brains and the children will be crying I can't learn because we're expecting them to go back to school some districts are already testing them when they know that the students have been out when they know that there has been a wide gap in the in the access to the technology And that the most vulnerable populations have probably been at home one because their parents have been afraid to let them um, go to school during covid two because the parents would want to stay there with them and then many of them did not have access to the technology and so those whose parents had to go to work were sitting at home you know and so yeah i yes long
0: story to it no but that was my follow-up question because uh with all these policies after board uh brown versus board it seemed like they were very universal policies it's all about like all the children we have to take care of all the children this is benefiting all the children ignoring that different children have different needs right and different demands so covid happened right it further like it was predicted it further exacerbated uh, socioeconomic and racial inequities in our schools. Um, Do you, based on what you've seen and what you've studied is this a point of racial reckoning in which we're transitioning from a a, a colorblind universal approach to a more equitable race conscious approach or Is the political movement just heightening um, this topic at this time, but it won't sustain?
1: I don't think it will sustain. You don't think so? I I, I don't think so because um, anytime you have um, leaders who mandate that children come back to school and testing, well, okay, let me give you a concrete example. Here in Georgia, for example, um, the Georgia Department of Education was willing to um, me- measure testing at 1%. Usually the testing for intercourse tests was 20%, I think. And there were some people in certain districts Dominantly white who said no, we want the test to be at least 10%. Now, why would they do that? I don't I don't know the rationale for. I don't I I can't fathom why they would do that, knowing that there were so many children who would not be able to test well unless they wanted to exacerbate or highlight the differences in the student achievement. So just that one small example tells me that we're not ready to deal with the inequities. All we're going to, all COVID has done is widen the gap. Now, some districts will come back and they're going to go, they're going to offer summer school for the students to catch up. And if they don't catch up in the summer, some districts have advocated for holding children back a whole year during COVID. Now, these are educators who are supposed to care about children. And if these, if the educators don't care about well, I won't say they don't, I won't say they don't care about it, but if they could have such callous policies, then what do we expect from everybody else? So I'm hopeful, I'm always hopeful, but I think that there are a few people who understand what is going on, but not enough who can really make a difference.
0: Well, historically we've seen, at least in the United States, whenever there is some sort of racial progress, there's a huge backlash. Yes,
1: yes, yes. So
0: right okay. now, what we're seeing is, including the Board of Regents in New York, they put out a DEI, a diversity, equity, and inclusion call to action. Um, which was just a draft, Um, no accountability measures. Um, So it was pretty toothless, Uh, but besides that, we've been seeing a lot of schools, even across the nation, starting to form DEI committees, diversity and inclusion committees, um, as well as other organizations such as PTAs and other parent groups or civic groups. Um, Is that the solution?
1: (laughs) Okay, so those, those efforts are good, but they only go as far as what you said, accountability. You have to have people who are willing to get in, who understand the problem, who appreciate the problem, and who are willing to take the risk to confront the policy makers, who are willing to take the risk to inform parents. Parents are the greatest advocates that educators have. Mm -hmm. And they're the same advocates that were used successfully be prior to desegregation because the parents and the schools had symbiotic relationships. What the schools needed, the parents advocated for. And I can talk about how they flipped the model of parent engagement, but we need to have parents involved, we need to have educators involved and we have, need to have the politicians who are sympathetic, who un, who get it involved as well. Uh, we need to have the people in the higher ed. Otherwise, what we do is ch- have diversity statements, right? And we check boxes. We say, oh, we had a uh, conference, check. You know, we uh, have a diversity statement, check. But the real work happens From the ground up, I'll give you a concrete example. Um, When I became um, director of a program, there was one African-American student in the program, period, out of 13. This is a higher ed program. And I said something is wrong with that. You mean there's only one African-American student who can qualify? When I took over the program, We still had the same criteria, but all of a sudden I'm seeing these students pop up who are well qualified, well over. And now our program is about um, a third minority, a third uh, black students and um, Hispanic students and then the rest are white. But think about all of the students who might've wanted to apply to the program and who were denied and on what basis. So I'm using that as an example to say, we have to have people who have courage enough to get in there and do the hard work to advocate for the student. And I may be using Hispanic, am I supposed to say Latina, Latinx? Different, it depends. Okay, it depends. all right, yeah. I, want to be, I want to be correct, right? <laughs> okay, so That that we have to do that Uh, at AERA this year, we had stakeholders, we had partners talking together, and that's that's I think we have to bring the community back together. We have to bring the business people, we have to bring the parents, we have to bring the schools, and we have to bring outside organizations to talk to one another, to talk about what the problem is and and to come up with solutions. Together, we can problem solve. But the other outside thing floating around, as you know as well as I do, is you have these politicians who have caught critical race theory and we're gonna ban critical race theory from all of the, um, from the syllabi, from the schools. You can't teach it. Um, We actually here in, maybe I shouldn't say this, but here in Georgia, we had a politician who went to the Board of Regents and they did a survey of all of the schools, public schools, K-16 to find out Who talked about critical race theory? Who talked about um, any particular people having privilege over another group of people? So while we have these people who are working to advocate for students, we have some politicians who are working against that same kind of effort, you know, because you want, because they are, they want to say they're colorblind, but in point of fact, we know that doesn't exist. you can't. How do they be know
0: how to stop at stoplights if they're colorblind?
1: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. You know, and uh, I tell I tell some of the teachers, I said, one one of my students said, Well, I'm colorblind. I'm colorblind. I said, There's no way you can be colorblind. I am not the same color that you are, and you know it. And then she just said, Oh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> you know. T- you just have to call it out when you see it
0: so that's a backlash right there yes, yes. um yes. in terms of education and the history of education what other sort of types of backlashes can we expect or are we starting to see right now
1: that's a tough question yeah yeah that that is, that is a tough question i think what we're going to see is perhaps, oh, we've already seen it. Mm. Okay, part of the backlash is the school choice movement. Mm -hmm. Because at least I can speak to Georgia and I can also speak uh, nationally. School choice became a big, big item. They were, were, um, politicians were saying well, we want your children to have the best education. If you look at New Orleans as an example, after Katrina, they regentrified so many areas in New Orleans, but some, and then they set them up as charter schools, right? Oh. And some of the there for a time period, there were about five thousand children who could not go to school because they had been redistricted out of the charter schools. And so that's one of the backlashes that we see now. Um, The charter school movement, they, they tout it as a panacea to the ills in the public school. And governments gradually build building blocks to support charter schools to the tune of taking away some money from the public schools. So what you see is people moving toward charter schools because they're supposed to be an, an answer to the problem and, they're, and, and private schools proliferating, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that's another backlash. You know, I will just take my child, and, you know, we're gonna have, we're gonna go to a private school. Um, and so, It's a subtle backlash, but it's undermining the public education where the majority, 70% of the black and brown children are in public education, right? And they are in segregated schools. Mm -hmm. And so if the funding is not there, then that's another kind of very, very subtle backlash. So if you had
0: a magic wand, and you could have education <clears throat> Excuse me. as you know, uh, equitable, but uh, still um, very responsive to different cultures, different needs, you, uh, basically uh, pandur- not pan not uh, uh, tailored to what the students need and what they demand and the resources that they need. What would that look like? and how would that
1: work? The first thing is that teachers are not being taught that there is a different way to educate children. And when they are being taught, they're being taught in isolation and in little pockets. Um, When I talk about the good, the aspirations, um, the high expectations, that happen in segregated schools, <clears throat> my students say, I've never heard of that. These are these are master's level students and doc level students. And they and they say, Why haven't I have, why haven't I been exposed to this? Because I don't think it's in anybody's best interest but the children who are suffering to expose them and trying to get other people to believe that there is a different way is so difficult, right? So the first thing I would do, which is antithetical to the way that things are going now is mandate, and I know that's bad because I don't like that (laughs) word, but I would mandate that students be exposed to the types of curriculum, the types of readings that would open their eyes Christine, I have had I teach it, I teach an urban urban leadership core of classes. And I have students, black and white, but my white students tell me, um, Dr. Croft, I never knew this. Mm-hmm. Why haven't I known this? Why haven't I been exposed to it? And it's because people don't either people don't know it or they don't, they choose not to. So the first thing I would do. Is teach them that there is another way to teach children besides testing, testing, testing. And I would and I would make sure that they that they knew how to go about it. Culturally, uh, responsive pedagogy, culturally responsive leadership, all of that. I would expose them to that. The second thing that I would do is I would flip. For students, teachers, the idea that parents have to come to the school to be engaged. That wasn't our model. The model yep. during, during segregation was that the parents sent your chi- the children to school and trusted that the school was going to do the best thing for the children. And in turn, whatever the school needed, the parents would reciprocate. Now we have people say, well, they don't care about their children because they don't ever come up to the school. No. that's Well, if you work two and three jobs, how can you come up to the school? And so I would encourage teachers to find new ways of reaching parents. One of um, the principals that I work with, she says, I don't want, she told her faculty, I don't want to hear parent engagement. I want to hear parent interest because Mm -hmm. If you do something, if the children are there, the parents are there, and I would dispel some of the myths, the myths that Title I schools are inferior. Um, the myths that the children who go to Title I schools are inferior. Where did we get the notion that because a child is poor, he or she is somehow inferior? Or, thinks, or or can't think for themselves. It's about opportunities. And so the word for me would be opportunity, opportunity. And something that, that um, this particular principal said to me, she said, you know why parents invest in band and sports so heavily? And I said, why? She said, because it gives their children opportunities to go to school that they don't have now. See, I would also, advocate for politicians now we're so polarized now that I don't know what we could get done but politicians have to have to begin to think about how to invest in education because if you invest in education you get an outcome right but if you don't invest in it what do you have prisons the school to prison pipeline I, I I was looking at some stats do you realize that we spend 20 on average between 20 and $40,000 a year to house a prisoner? And yet the average that we spend in the United States to educate a child is $12,000. We'd rather put them in prison than, than to educate them. It's a, it's a redistribution of funds, right? So I would do that. Though those are the things that come at, on the top of my head just thinking about
0: so like so if you need parents you need the community you need teachers you need politicians um we all know that racially and socioeconomically is not representative all these bodies right Our most of our administrators are white most of our teachers are white most of our politicians are white men with money um (laughs) So how do we get people in there? I mean, there's gonna have to be a lot of work done initially to widen the pool.
1: You're you're absolutely right. Um, The thing that came to my mind when you were asking the question, or the person who came to my mind was Stacy Abrams. And she started a grassroots um, organization to get people out to vote. And I think as educators um, take a lesson from her playbook and we have to find ways to meet the parents and the politicians who are willing to make a difference.
0: I just wanted to ask you one last question. And this is the question I always ask everyone. Um, As your last words, right? What do you want people to remember from this conversation about the history of black teachers, um, the repercussions of Brown versus the Board of Ed and the inequities that still exist right now? What do you want people to know or to remember from this and take away for them to tell other people?
1: I want people to to understand that the way we are doing things now, the way we're teaching children now, is only is, is very one-sided, it's very myopic, and it's not designed to build equity, it's not designed to build in the best educational experiences for all children. I want them to know that there is a different way that we can come together and educate children, but it's going to take the entire community and to use a kind of overused phrase, it will take the village, but the village has to wake up and they have to understand that what they are, what they have been exposed to is not designed to help all children. And that the historical model of the way teachers taught during segregation is a good place to start for all teachers whether the children are black or brown or blue or purple for all children.
0: (laughs) Well, if they're blue, I hope they go to the doctor really. I do, right. (laughs) They might have COVID. (laughs) Well, thank you so much for teaching us and talking about this very prescient issue Um, because when it comes up, either there's defensiveness or there's just a lack, there's a gap of knowledge in this issue it's almost as if it just happened out of the blue it's like wait we don't have black teachers wait we don't like have hispanic teachers we don't have that many asian american teachers or native american teachers like where that come from i think you're frozen again okay okay, with that yeah you're back so thank you so much teaching us about this. We're very grateful. Hopefully, uh, people will listen to this and sort of contextualize where this is coming from and where we can go and how we can address it in the future. So, yes. So I hope you have a good night. Be safe. Stay healthy. Chris. Oh, you're frozen again hold on one second let me see if I can see you unfreeze there you go I see you
1: what's okay. up will I be able to see the finished product
0: yes I can I hope you're still listening to me I can send it to you before I put it up it's going to be edited obviously
1: that's fine so, it probably needs to be <laughs>
0: yeah. um but thank you so much this was really informative and it, it it's good to contextualize things in, in a historical way because not only does it teach us how it came about but it teaches us like hey if you're not changing this this is what's going to continue to happen
1: you know right 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 and well, it's funny
0: that you're telling me that like, you teach your students and they're like oh I didn't know this you know yeah. when exactly. I used to teach at Baruch I used to tell my students this, because they were like more like intro classes they were like social psych psych of gender which was fun Uh, leadership and managerial development really fun classes and at the beginning I used to tell them two things I was like first of all you think you're coming here to learn you're coming here to unlearn all those things that you thought were true that you didn't even know you learned throughout your life exactly this is an unlearning process and the second thing is I want you to leave this course with more questions than you came in exactly that's it I just you know and sometimes they would ask me things and I would be like
1: I don't know. Let's look it up. Let's research that. You know? Let's let's find out. And I'll say this quickly before you go. That there are not well teachers who teach this kind of thing are under fire. And many of them are very afraid to teach for because they might lose their job. And so, you know, that that is a real threat, you know.
0: That's a true thing. And they could lose their jobs for yes. that
1: yeah.
0: and you know it's, it's 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 a weird thing when you have to juggle between advocacy and self-preservation exactly that's why we need people who are allies and i hate the word allies i want them to be complicit you know yes. that's why we need people with more privilege to be able to like fill in those spaces where we can't
1: risk losing a job. Exactly, and and that's what the parents did during segregation. That's what the teachers did. They used the parents to advocate for what they needed because they knew if they found out, if the establishment found out, they would lose their jobs, right? And if I can say this quickly, I was in a class with a gentleman, a white gentleman. And he said, you know, I admit that I have privilege and I can fight until it gets hot. But once the battle gets hot, I always have an escape hatch because I'm always white. He said, my my fellow blacks, Black comrades in the struggle, they don't have that.
0: Mm-mm. You can't escape it. You can't go to a safe place because even in your home it's not a safe place. You turn on the TV and it's reminding you how you're a second-class citizen. You go to sleep, you might get shot.
1: Exactly, exactly, exactly. And nobody is working with the children to help them understand in the last
0: Oh no, you froze a little, again. I don't know if you can hear me, but you're still frozen. Let's see.
1: Still frozen. Yeah, I'm back. Oh, you got frozen. I apologize, I apologize. It's all right. It's not your fault,
0: actually. <laughs> it's, not, it's not at all your fault. Oh, that's crazy though. It's It's getting kind of bad now. Yeah. yeah. Oh, At you're unfrozen.
1: Yeah. At any rate, um, thank you for the opportunity. I enjoyed it.
0: I enjoyed it, too. And I read the book. I could tell. Yeah, I, I sent you the picture. I'm like, I'm reading. I'm doing research right now. <laughs> By the way, that book, people should read Pedagogy of the Oppressed. Every teacher should read that book. Yes,
1: absolutely. Absolutely.
0: Every teacher, every board member, every... every educational administrators should read that book
1: and they and they should it. also they should also read um the new jim crow yes Michelle alexander that is you know that's a good,
0: it's right now i'm reading push out have you heard of it
1: i have but i haven't read it
0: yeah i'm starting to read it right now i, I mean listening in audiobook but that's how
1: right. i
0: read most books
1: Are you familiar with, um, for white folks who teach in the hood and all the others?
0: Somebody recommended that book to me.
1: Yeah. That's good. Yeah, it is. It is. It is. It is. My students, those who have never been exposed to anything, they really appreciate that book. Oh, okay.
0: That's interesting. Yeah. I've been going through a lot of these books lately and I'm just like, the one that really got to me also, like that I, I. I mean, I know racism exists. I know how bad it is. But when I read it, I was like, wow, this is a lot worse than I thought. It was uh, Nobody by uh, uh, (laughs) Lamont Hill, by Mark Lamont Hill. Okay. Oh, it was a lot, though. It was like one right after the other, just examples and just like contextualizing it. And, And I'm like, okay, everybody already in my town, in my little town in Long Island, things I make everything about race I read that book and I'm like oof this is even worse than I even thought <laughs> so yeah I highly recommend it And I think you froze again okay. no I fr- like that book was great um yeah and been learning a lot it's never it never stops it never stops you know
1: yeah yeah yeah
0: all right, well, thank you so much. I'm gonna let you go do your thing and I will send you a recording before I put it out. So you can watch it and you can tell me what you think. We'll probably edit out the parts that were frozen.
1: Okay, but th- that's good. Or, 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 the, or, the, or the parts where I was trying to think of the word and it just didn't come, right? No. That
0: makes you human and therefore like approachable and likable.
1: I think you're frozen again. Oh, there you yeah. go. We'll just say good night, huh? Yes. Thank you
0: so much. And I'll send it to you.
1: All right. Thank you.
0: All good right. Night. Good night. Thank you.